So, Gabe. Hi, Alex. How's it going? I'm okay. How are you? I'm um, pretty good. I'm um, just out here in Bushwick um, in my <laughs> very dark room because I've blocked out the windows so that we can record. Day 200 or 300 of the quarantine? I don't actually know when the quarantine started, nor did I. I think I sort of was one of those jerks who was still was sort of taking long walks when you weren't supposed to be anymore. So I can't really say the number of days it's been. Um, I don't want people to yell at me. It's impossible to know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm recording from my bed, which I figured is the closest thing in my apartment to a carpeted room, which I'm told is preferable for right. podcast report recording. But Right. I have a carpet that's about two by six. Um, so hopefully that's adequate uh, to the job. <laughs> it's a little red carpet in my room. Um, so why don't we start by introducing ourselves and then talk about why we're doing this show? What is this show? What's it called? This show is Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Nice. Sounds cool. Why is it called that? Uh, it's called that because that is a famous line from the book, The Making of the English Working Class, written by Edward Palmer or E.P. Thompson in 1963. Uh, one of the most famous lines in one of the most famous works of history published in the 20th century. However, it's a book that's 800 odd pages, so a lot of people kind of mean to read it mm -hmm. for a long time without having read it. I'm one of those people. I'm Alex Press. Um, I'm an assistant editor at Jacobin. I'm an occasional labor reporter and union activist. Um, I'm a grad school dropout, so this is really fun for me because this feels like grad school all over again. Um, and I may treat you like a professor a little bit. Um, sorry about that. Grad school, notoriously a fun time. <laughs> you know, it was better than waitressing, so I didn't really mind it so much. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and who are you? I'm Gabe Winant. Uh, I am an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago. Uh, also a occasional labor writer, uh, activist, and so on. I read this book kind of at the beginning. I'm a labor historian, and I read this book at the beginning of my graduate work. It's sort of a thing you have to read if you're going to be in this field. Uh, but, you know, I was 23 or something. I'm not sure how much of it I kept with me, and I hadn't done much politics in my life at that point. It's a book that a lot of people who have been activists and organizers say has been very influential for them. So I'm very excited to revisit it. Uh, you know, now into my kind of decrepitude. <laughs> You're not that old, Gabe. Whatever. <laughs> should we get into the context or should we start? Let's get we into it. We should get into the context. Okay, cool. Why don't we jump to that? Yeah, before we get into the preface, which we're going to read some passages from it and talk about them. I think it helps to sort of say what this intervention was that Thompson was making. Like, what was the milieu he was in and what were the arguments? Yeah, well, I think, you know, first of all, even before we do that, it's maybe we're saying just a, a word about the significance of this book. First of all, according to Eric Hobsbawm, who was E.P. Thompson's friend and peer and colleague in uh, the Communist Party Historians Group of Great Britain in the mid-50s, uh, when Thompson died, which is, I think, 1992, he, he had been cited more than any other historian in the world in the 20th century by other historians. There is a pretty well-known historian of Germany named Jeff Ely, 
who went to graduate school in the 1960s at Oxford and described here in his memoir, uh, I'm going to read a word from it, about his discovery of E.P. Thompson. How would I distill Edward Thompson's importance in the late 1960s and early 1970s for my personal sense of the generational breakthrough to social history then occurring? I first read The Making of the English Working Class in the winter of 1968-1969, when my attention was very far from the official classroom and its curriculum. The desiccated and hollowed-out learning of the Oxford Modern History School was leaving me cynically unconvinced that becoming a historian was still a future I wanted to acquire. Discovering Thompson's book allowed me to reconstruct my sense of history's importance. It was so inspiring because it provided access to a potential counter-narrative that was different from the story of national stability and successful consensus of gradualist progression toward a naturalized present, that everything in the insidiously assimilative intellectual culture of post-war Britain invited me to accept. Thompson's book showed me the instabilities in that account, which could be retold against the grain in some very different ways. So there are a lot, like a lot of versions of that story, Mm -hmm. thousands of versions of that story that happened for historians in particular, obviously, but also activists of all kinds who found in this book uh, something about what it means to decide to commit oneself to a political life. The other quick example I want to give is from the historian Fred Cooper, who's a historian of uh, decolonization and workers' movements in Africa. And he was wrote a reflection on the significance of Thompson, and he begins it this way. He says, let me begin by mentioning the titles of some of the major books in African labor history in the 1970s and 1980s. The Development of an African Working Class, The Making of an African Working Class, Ghanaian Miners' Struggles, 1970 to 1980, Islam and Urban Labor in Northern Nigeria, The Making of a Muslim Working Class, and A Working Class in the Making, Belgian Colonial Labor Policy, Private Enterprise, and the African Mine Workers, 1907 to 51. So I say all that just to say this book had a huge impact. It was read by thousands of people. If you know someone who was a kind of bookish activist in 1968, there's a quite a good chance they read this book. Mm-hmm. And if that person, you know, went on to become an academic, there's a hundred percent chance they read this book. Sure. And I think all of that is really the reason that it still lives on today, despite a million debates and disputes and problems. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I mean, because I remember, so I was telling my dad that I was starting this podcast and I gave him the title of the book and he just, you know, he sounded like he was falling asleep, you know, as we were talking about it. Um, and, you know, why do you care about the English working class? Why do you care about this specific time? But as you say, I mean, this had a global impact. This is not just a book for specialists of this era. It actually is has been incredibly generative for people to take this sort of project and apply it to their own context. Right. Um, which I think is a mark of an, of a successful intervention, which is what Thompson was trying to do, intervene in the moment, I think. Yeah. So as you suggested, why don't we get into that moment and talk a little bit about what was going on then that motivated him to write this book? Sure. And so I, when I was doing some of this reading, Perry Anderson, who will mention a lot, I'm sure, throughout the, this podcast, because he was a constant arguing partner, sparring partner with Thompson. He said each of Thompson's major historical texts represented both a professional recovery of the past and a militant intervention in the present, Um, which I think is a really interesting way to think of a historian and an academic operating Um, in our context. That's almost that's so unusual is what it feels like. Um, But I think that's exactly what Thompson was doing here. Um, So what was the moment? Well, it was the late 50s. That's when he embarked on this project. He got hired 
by the left-wing publisher Victor Gollins to write a history of the British working class over a much longer period of time. And it was supposed to be a textbook, right? It was supposed to be way shorter. Right. Much shorter book covering much more history was the idea. Right. Uh, and he got stuck at the in the late 1700s and early 1800s and wrote 800 pages about that instead in, in a textbook. But maybe it's worth saying a word about who he was and kind of what brought him in his life to that moment. Mm-hmm. Thompson was born into a kind of liberal, uh, you know, upper sort of middle upper class family. Um, his parents were friends with Nehru, the person who would be the first prime minister of India and had, you know, sort of mainstream liberal politics. Uh, but he and his brother both became co- his brother, Frank, mm-hmm. both became communists uh, at the end of the 30s, beginning of the 40s. Uh, in the moment of the popular front against fascism. And Thompson would look back on that period as uh, he would call it the age of heroes, uh, the kind of global struggle against fascism and the meaning of communism in that time uh, was something that he, even through all of his ideological changes, would kind of never rebuke or never really regret. Uh, his brother, Frank, also died in the war but in a, on a kind of mission behind enemy lines, which is very a very important moment, I think, in Thompson's attachment to communism his his brother had really like the older brother had Mm -hmm. led him into it and then died in in the struggle against fascism uh thompson himself didn't fight in the war uh but in 1947 he went to yugoslavia to volunteer on the construction of a railway uh, as part of a volunteer solidarity brigade with uh socialist yugoslavia which i think is kind of cool okay cool yeah exactly so at that point he's already Um, pretty active in left-wing politics if he's trained. <laughs> shipping off to Yugoslavia to build. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's pretty hardcore. Through the 50s, he was a member, or the first part of the 50s, he was a member, as we mentioned a minute ago, of the Communist Party Historians Group, as well as the Communist Party Writers Group. Um, the Communist Party of Great Britain kind of organized its intellectual participants into these sort of professional groups to carry on their work. Uh, and it was in the Historians Group that he was along, he worked alongside um, and got to know a number of really prominent left-wing British historians. We mentioned Eric Hobsbawm. Other figures like this were Christopher Hill, his own wife, Dorothy Thompson, John Saville. There's a whole group of them who would go on to be very, very influential. They founded journals. They wrote, you know, they re- kind of reframed whole periods of history. We don't need to get into the academic details of it right now. Um, but then in 1956, mm-hmm. a kind of fateful moment happened for this group and for Thompson in particular, uh, which is the first uh, Khrushchev secret speech in which he reveals and denounces the crimes of Stalin. Sure. And two, Khrushchev's invasion of Hungary, which had attempted to kind of self-determine, have a more self-determined socialism, free, more free from Soviet rule. Uh, and then, you know, Soviet tanks rolled in. And in protest of these two things, Thompson and most of his colleagues in the historians group quit the party Mm -hmm. and began a process of having a kind of reckoning with Stalinism. So to me, that's the kind of really important personal context for him and the the process that's brought him up to the late 50s, which is when he starts writing this book. Yeah. And just to follow up on something. So there's the communist writers group and the communist historians group, right? Yeah. How are they different? So the writers group, do they end up as widely sort of denouncing Stalinism post 56? That's a good question. I think in general, you know, a lot of the intellectuals uh, in the different groups basically quit the party and go on these kind of 
more independent journeys. Thompson himself always had a kind of literary flair. He was not, he didn't he did not have a PhD. Um, he was doing a worker's education for adult workers in Yorkshire when he wrote this book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was always really interested and wrote poetry. So, you know, I think he even maybe even more than the historians, the kind of writerly side of him and his participation in that part of the party uh, made him particularly allergic to Stalinism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in reading some of his other writings, as well as the debates that Perry Anderson and him are having in, in the 60s, it was really interesting. You know, one big sort of term that people at the time were using was socialist humanism, right? And I get this sense from Thompson's writing and throughout this whole book, of course, that, you know, it's this sort of emphasis on starting with people. You know, politics starts with real people. Um, some of his debate with Anderson, he's mad that there's a sort of schematic being overlaid onto history. Um, and he feels that Anderson is sort of rejecting those who didn't behave in the ways that um, sort of would have been typical of the model. Um, and in a lot of ways, I, it reads as a reaction against Stalinism, against this sort of structural determinism, um, this sense of class as a thing, as an objective um, it that's there. Um, and I think the humanism of the time, it wasn't just limited to Thompson or to the British um, Marxist left. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, it's this sort of turning the stick back against this scientific sort of approach um, that, you know, denies the humanity of people who might be sort of the losers of, uh, as Thompson puts it, um, the people who went down the blind alleys of history. Yeah, I mean, the famous uh, the famous line right in the beginning of the preface, here, the opening lines of the book. Mm -hmm. This book has a clumsy title, but it is one which meets its purpose, making because it is a study in an active process, which owes as much to agency as to conditioning. The working class did not rise like the sun at an appointed time. It was present at its own making. What do you think he's saying by that? So as as far as what I was just saying, I mean, he's responding again to against this sort of structuralism, right? This sort of... Um, sense of, you know, sociologists at the time versus Thompson's historian background. Sociologists are constantly refining their class stratification models, right? And I think he often writes of um, sort of sarcastically about sociologists and how little he has to contribute. Um, even in this preface, actually, he says, you know, I hope I have something to contribute to the study of class, um, but not in this sort of traditional sociological sense, um, because he's rejecting those models, right? He's saying that actually, you know, the class is present at its own making. There is no class beyond the relations between men um, and the happening that follows. He says class is a happening at one point. Um, and so I think it's a, I, it, this is what I explained to my dad when he said that title sucks. Um, I said, it's funny you say that because famously he agreed with you. On in the that. first line of the book. <laughs> in the first line, which is, I admire the setting low expectations from the first line for an author of an 800 word book. Uh, well, I do think that it, uh, it's an interesting way that what you're saying here is showing how he's trying to thread a needle. Cause on the yep. one hand is the Stalinist uh, past that he's breaking with and kind of repudiating, right. Um, that there's a kind of direct determination between the economic base and the cultural and political superstructure. Right. Um, and that would be a way in which, uh, the working class rises like the sun in the sky at its appointed time, right? Mm -hmm. When your industrial development reaches a certain level, then proletarianization reaches a certain level. Uh, you know, peasants are herded into the cities and they begin, work, you know, to be factory workers. 
and then class struggle commences. Class struggle will then increase over this. You know, like that sort of was how Stalinist historical materialism worked, mm-hmm. um, at least as Thompson saw it. So that's one thing he's rebuking. But on the other hand, also on his right, as you're saying, he's criticizing sociologists who, you know, I think we have this idea in the present day that sociology is like a super left wing field. Um, I do not have that idea. As okay, who's well, in you, a you know, sociology you know program. better. But I think <laughs> yeah. that's a commonly held idea. Um, yes. But in the 50s and early 60s, sociology is actually a very mainstream, uh, almost like econ today, uh, a field in which, you know, ma- like mainstream sociologists get to advise presidents on what they should do and um, played a really key role in uh, advocating for the ideology that we could call Cold War liberalism, right? Mm-hmm. The, and that's the idea that, you know, modern industrial societies, um, you know, they had some turbulence definitely in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but they've kind of successfully modernized and uh, incorporated the working class such that, you know, it exists, class conflict exists, but uh, it's just one of many conflicts in society. And, you know, the working class is just one of many interest groups in society. Sure. Um, and Marxism is one of many different ways to analyze the world, right? Yeah, and a wrong one from so, this point of view. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so maybe your grad student will dabble in this or that theory and steal this and that theory from different analysts. But right. ultimately, the idea of a structuring division in society is no longer believed. Right. And this is, you know, it's really noticeable in the preface. Thompson um, distinguishes between speaking of the working class and the working classes, right? That these mm-hmm. are different constructions. And the working classes is the sociological one, right? Because it's like, okay, there's different parts of the working class and or different groups of people who we would call working class, but they're kind of internally segmented and stratified in different ways. And so really there's no one thing. Um, right. He says there are tailors here and weavers there. Exactly. Um, and, you know, that's the view of class, as he puts it somewhere else, as an identity, right? Um, as a, or a category that you can kind of specify. And as you were saying before, what he's interested instead in is what develops with historical time, with the passage of time. I picked out this quote I'd also I want to read. Yeah, um, go for it. Uh, which is a kind of famous quote of his from another piece, but around the same time. He says, sociologists who have stopped the time machine and with a good deal of conceptual huffing and puffing have gone down to the engine room to look, tell us that nowhere at all have they been able to locate and classify a class. They can only find a multitude of people with different occupations, incomes, status, hierarchies, and the rest. Of course, they were right, since class is not this or that part of the machine, but the way the machine works once it is set in motion. Not this interest and that interest, but the friction of interests, the movement itself, the heat, the thundering noise. Class is a social and cultural formation, often finding institutional expression, which cannot be defined abstractly or in isolation, but only in terms of relationship with other classes. And ultimately, the definition can only be made in the medium of time. That is action and reaction, change and conflict. When we speak of a class, we are thinking of a very loosely defined body of people who share the same conjuries of interests, social experiences, traditions, and value system, who have a disposition to behave as a class, to define themselves in their actions and in their consciousness in relation to other groups of people in class ways. But class itself is not a thing. It is a happening. That was what you quoted before, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
And what is that from? Is that from this book or is that from elsewhere? That wound up in an afterword to this book, but I think it's in um, one of his responses to Anderson. Yeah, that makes sense because it sounds really familiar and that's what I've just been reading over the past week. And it's also Thompson at his... I mean, I love, as I'm getting to know sort of Thompson's style of writing, the like sociologist huffing and puffing, like him when he's cranky is just like extremely good. Um, And so I'm I'm hoping there's a lot of that in this book. Uh, Well, I think there is, you know. Um, Yeah. But, you know, it's uh, part of the intensity of his anger, I think, is about his sense that... um, you know, criticizing sociologists and kind of more like liberals, basically, with whom he's arguing, um, that their understanding of England's industrial past is, um, you know, on the one hand, maybe they kind of try to brush over how horrible the process of industrialization was. And we're going to see him getting mad about that. Mm -hmm. But two, even if they acknowledge, you know, the kind of horrors of like, the destruction of, you know, working class people's bodies and, um, you know, child labor and all of this, even if they acknowledge that, it's still part of a kind of sequence of progress and modernization, right? That societies just have to go through this thing. Uh, and, it, you know, we're not conservatives, right? We understand it's sort of painful and there should be reforms, but it's basically something you just have to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book, I mean, as Thompson will say about this book later, and hope, you know, we'll get to this. This book is an argument that there was very, very nearly a revolution, like in the 1830s that overthrew British society, mm-hmm. um, which is a very different view from the idea of, you know, industrialization being kind of maybe painful, but kind of one track modernization updating process. Sure. And can you give some names to the sort of sociologist that he's arguing against at the time? Well, in America, the main figure who he's arguing with at least in the preface here is Talcott Parsons. Um, in Britain, there was a figure named Ralph Darendorf who was a popularizer of what's sometimes called the embourgeoisement thesis. That's the idea that in the post-war period, the working class was becoming bourgeois, uh, right? Because of the welfare state mm-hmm. and the institutionalization of trade unionism uh, and the general post-war kind of affluent society phenomenon, working like working class people were not distinct anymore from the bourgeoisie. Um, And that's a story that is trying to present itself as a kind of happy ending to, you know, the sequence of modernization over time. Sure. In the second page of the preface, he quotes a colleague of Parsons, um, N.J. Smelsner. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Neil Smelsner, yeah. There you go. Um, And he says here he's and this is similar to what you're saying about Parsons and the view of sort of society is developing over time in this sort of sometimes tragic way. But ultimately, it's all going to work out. Um, He says here, um, class consciousness, however, is a bad thing invented by displaced intellectuals, since everything which disturbs the harmonious coexistence of groups performing different social roles and which thereby retards economic growth is to be deplored as an unjustified disturbance symptom. The problem is to determine how best it, the working class, can be conditioned to accept its social role and how its grievances may best be, quote, handled and channeled. So this is exactly what he's against is sort of that as far as who he's fighting on his right, um, the Parsons of the world that are sort of creating this this sense of, well, there are social roles and we're not going to ask how one 
arrived at that role and where the role came from and where social organization that created these stratifications came from. We'll just sort of try to fit people into it as best we can. Yeah, I think what's so interesting about this book, or at least about the preface, is how he is so angry, right, at these people who, in one way or another, have said that um, working class struggle and class consciousness are these sort of disturbances that are in, mainly in England's past, and you know, like to the extent that they continue, just need to kind of be managed. Um, but nonetheless, he's very explicit that he's telling a story of defeat and loss. Um, and I think it's just a sort of interesting tension in the book. Uh, it brings us to what's probably the most famous passage, not just from the preface, but from the whole book. Uh, is it cool if I read it? Yeah, of course. He's talking about the different kinds of people he's arguing with. And he says, all have added to our knowledge. So he acknowledges <laughs> all, all of our added to our knowledge. Classic, uh, like, a classic uh, <laughs> um, insult line. Yeah, great. I mean, you, you gotta, we got to find ways to use that in our, in, in our lives. Um, my quarrel with the first and second is that they tend to obscure the agency of working people, the degree to which they have con contributed by conscious efforts to the making of history. My quarrel with the third is that it reads history in the light of subsequent preoccupations and not as in fact it occurred. Only the successful, in the sense of those whose aspirations anticipated subsequent evolution, are remembered. The blind alleys, the lost causes and the losers themselves are forgotten. I am seeking to rescue the poor stockinger, the Luddite cropper, the obsolete handloom weaver, the utopian artisan, and even the deluded follower of Joanna Southcott from the enormous condescension of posterity. Their crafts and traditions may have been dying. Their hostility to the new industrialism may have been backward looking. Their communitarian ideals may have been fantasies. Their insurrectionary conspiracies may have been foolhardy, but they lived through these times of acute social disturbance and we did not. Their aspirations were valid in terms of their own experience. And if they were casualties of history, they remain condemned in their own lives as casualties. I just think it's, I mean, it's a beautiful line and, you know, maybe worth talking more about, but I just think it's kind of interesting also how he's both saying, here are these people who, you know, have these valid experiences and shape the course of history and need to be incorporated into our understanding of how our society developed and yet also I'm acknowledging they lost, right? And that, mm -hmm. that, that posture is just, I think, like there's tension in it. That's really part of what makes the book so good. Yeah, that seems right. Um, and what do you, can I ask you, when he says they're casualties of history, they remain condemned in their own lives as casualties. Can you talk more about what he's saying here? Like, what's the meaning of all of that? Well, I think, you know, to kind of understand that, we have to actually say who these people were. We should probably do that. Sure. Um, so... The Luddite cropper, I mean, the cropper is someone who, you know, picks crops, right? Or sure. har harvest crops. Uh, so Luddite croppers, you know, are people, are agricultural workers who were involved in the smashing of machinery. Mm -hmm. um, the obsolete handloom weaver, I think, is a fairly obvious one, too. Sure. The, as is the utopian artisan. Um, the deluded all... follower of Joanna Southcott. Now, yeah, for sorry, people who I realize don't... actually only one of these is not obvious, which is yeah. the deluded follower of Joanna Southcott. Joanna Southcott was like a... Um, a cult leader, prophet figure um, who emerged in this period. There's a lot about religion in this book, which makes sense. And, um, you know, she, for a brief moment in, uh, I think the 1790s, uh, um, had a big following. We mm -hmm. should say, let's just say for a moment here, uh, I think we're going to have a, a lot of our followers or listeners to this are going to be British. And we're obviously both American. 
so I just, you know, want to own that we'll probably miss some stuff about English history. <laughs> yes, definitely. I want to apologize from the very beginning. I have been watching as different people start getting interested in this idea of reading along. And they're all like incredibly distinguished academics in spe specific fields that this book covers. And I'm just like, holy shit, do they know that I have not read this book? And are they going to be mad? So hopefully everyone can can forgive us for our absences and blind spots. Uh, while you are saying that, I'm trying to figure out when Joanna Southcott was most active. Um, Gabe, I wouldn't worry too much about okay. getting the years right. Okay. I had it wrong, but it doesn't matter. Um, so anyway, um, the, you know, the, I mean, he's, he names these different groups, uh, different types of casualties, I think, uh, so that he can illustrate what he means in this kind of twofold way, casualties in their own time and casualties of history. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, ca the casualties of history dimension is what we've been talking about. It's the idea that these people were just kind of tangents off the narrative of, you know, the rise of Britain to industrial and world dominance and modernity and wealth. Uh, and, you know, they were just the disturbance, right? They were the noise. Um, their casualties in their own time, however, uh, I think the, what he's saying, I mean, it's an ambiguous line, but I think what he's saying by it is they weren't just noise. They actively struggled and tried to shape the direction of history and they failed. Mm -hmm. um, and the outcome is not just something that happened with them as kind of irrelevancies. The outcome was something that happened because they failed, right? That English history was kind of paved over the bodies of these casualties. Right, right. Um is that how you read it? Yeah, that's how I read it. I mean, it's interesting this like there's a strong more than a hint of romanticism about everything Thompson writes and says. Um, and he's sort of saying it here. He's saying it throughout the book. And when I was reading these some other essays of his, you know, he's constantly saying we're not the at the end of history ourselves or, you know, he's mad about the enormous condescension of posterity. Um, and it's sort of this. He's immediately from page one of this preface giving a sense of his sort of own perspective towards these so-called losers of history um, that I find really interesting in comparison to how, you know, a lot of Marxist writers take a different tack and are painfully not romantic and sort of objective in their writing. Right. And sort of deterministic. Um, so, again, he's sort of writing against that, um, it seems like. And it must be something in his own personality that he all of his work is endowed with this sort of posture towards yeah, its subjects yeah i mean he wrote biographies of william blake the romantic poet um and his first book was a biography of william morris who was you know a leading socialist figure but also um kind of a you know romantic figure with his own kind of aesthetic worldview and so on in his own right mm -hmm. um you know it's interesting so what you said made me think of this other line that i wanted to bring up though which is and again, I think it's sort of ambiguous. Um, he just a paragraph below where we were before. He says, uh, first, it was a time in which the plebeian movement placed an exceptionally high valuation upon egalitarian and democratic values. Although we often boast our democratic way of life, the events of these critical years are far too often forgotten or slurred over. Second, the greater part of the world today is still undergoing problems of industrialization and of the formation of democratic institutions analogous in many ways to our own experience during the Industrial Revolution. Causes which were lost in England might, 
in Asia or Africa yet be won. This is a very famous line also. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, is related to Thompson's kind of worldwide fame and uh, reception. And I also think it gets at a kind of interesting tension in him uh, also that we, you know, we'll talk, we can talk more about as we go forward. Because on the one hand, I think such a key thing about this book is he's saying people didn't enter capitalist industrial industrial capitalism nude, right? They entered it with all of the habits and ideas and culture that they already were formed in, and that shaped how they responded to it. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes the English working class English, right? Is because it uh, is steeped in English history already when it encounters the factory. On the other hand, he also clearly, and this is part of the romantic thing, he clearly uh, wants to redeem this history by saying it's going to play out and be won somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? Um, that the working classes in Africa and Asia are going to go through a similar thing and maybe they'll do it pull it off i found this quote i can't remember where it's from but i think it's um it's a thompson quote where he says it's always the business of the left to foster the utmost aspiration compatible with existing reality and then some more beyond and that seems like again exactly what he's doing here with this sort of sense of well these were losers but hey we don't know the conjuncture in other places and we can't count out that this might actually be one somewhere else yeah yeah um, I think, you know, maybe it'd be worth talking a little bit about, like, Englishness, as your dad <laughs> asked you. Um, I mean, what is your, like, what is your read on Englishness in this book? Oh, Gabe, so don't ask me this. And in I, have, I have yet to formulate my theory of the peculiarity of the English. Um, I've been reading. Been- have you? Have you? Are you not referring I've, to I've been starting that? to read that essay, and it is slow going. Um, so I don't want to answer. Can you instead sort of give a sense for listeners of what of what Thompson sort of saw as Englishness and in all its peculiarities. Well, what I can, but instead okay. of doing that, um, why don't we talk about the Thompson-Anderson okay, debate sure. for a minute? Because um, I, re- I reread some of it getting ready for this. I know that you've been reading it. Um, yeah, Anderson's great to read. No offense to Thompson, um, but... Yeah, so what does Anderson say? Um, well, let's see. Why don't we start by just, like, the two of them. So for those of us who do, haven't, don't know all the history of the new left in England, what was their relationship? Uh, well, so Thompson's mm-hmm. older. Um, Thompson uh, was born in the 20s, I think. Um, and he's, you know, he's a half a generation, basically, older than Perry Anderson. And uh, was involved in the foundation of the New Left Review, still the best Marxist journal in the world today, (laughs) um, in the late 50s, um, which came out of a merger of other other publications. Um, And so in the late 50s, Thompson sort of involved in doing that, um, publishes a bunch of early stuff there. You know, working out some of the ideas that are going to make up this book in 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 that scene, um, and then Perry Anderson, who, like I say, is ten fifteen years younger than him, um, kind of comes onto the scene somewhat as a kind of mentee figure of Thompson and Eric Hobsbawm and these other Communist Party historians, um, but Anderson is much worldlier 
Uh, I mean, not that Thompson or especially Hobson was unworldly, but Anderson, uh, I mean, his, his family had lived in China for a while. They were, they were Anglo Irish, kind of very elite. Um, and uh, he himself had gotten kind of politicized by Isaac Deutscher, who was a Trotskyist. And so he was kind of connected to this other international tradition of Trotskyism. Um, and with more, by dint of like being younger, being more what we think of as like a sixties new left person was also kind of more tuned in to uh, Marxist theory happening elsewhere in the world, especially in France. Um, and so he and Thompson would have this conflict over the course of the sixties, which involved also Anderson kind of staging a coup at new left mm-hmm. review. I don't, I've never quite understood all the ins and outs of the details of that, but uh, you know, basically Anderson winds up in charge with his his generational cohorts of New Left Review. Um, and I think there were some bad feelings around that. But also there's this kind of theoretical difference and this kind of overall worldview difference and a kind of political difference that comes out of mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. And so in some of these essays, when Anderson is being critical of Thompson, a lot of it really is this has he he says things like has he read a book after 1941 like has he maybe if he'd read anything you know in the past 20 years or anything from another country this would be a lot sharper of an essay which is like pretty brutal uh, to say to your mentor um but it it yeah. as someone who doesn't know that much about Perry Anderson yeah i mean that's the sense it gives off is there's this sort of like younger more cosmopolitan um internationalist uh thinker who is now coming up against Thompson's what he calls, I mean, at times even like a nationalism of sorts, like a sort of willful provincialism um, that he takes issue with in Thompson. Yeah. Well, I mean, a huge amount of what Thompson's project is, is to try to show against the Stalinists and against the liberals that uh, the English working class has its own revolutionary resources, Mm -hmm. right? That in its own traditions, um, are the materials for, you know, winning socialism. And yes, as you say, Anderson finds that very provincial and develops this whole critique of like all English thinkers. Kind yeah. Of. So this is like the origins of the present crisis is one and from Anderson. And then there's also the left in the 50s i think is the other essay of his and then socialism and pseudo empiricism all of these are like incredibly brutal um arguments with that largely revolve around thompson um where he says he pointedly says again and again you know england has not created great thinkers um in any sense of the term um and it has not created a sense of a sort of like marxist lineage that could have been a part of a revolutionary movement um, and he's trying to explain why that is Um, whereas in Thompson and in his responses he's often saying you know this is a schematic that actually itself is just based on France and is itself not moving beyond this provincialism it's just centered in a different place yeah right Anderson is saying um, the English bourgeoisie never overthrew the English aristocracy Um, I mean they had conflict but they eventually kind of merged Mm -hmm. Um, and the absence of a proper kind of bourgeois revolution on the model of France then made the English proletariat 
kind of conservative in a variety of ways, um, and that its own its own struggles and its own class consciousness uh, never acquired the kind of revolutionary ambition that its peers on the continent had, except for in the, it's very interesting, I think. He says in the period that the making of the English working class is about, he agrees with mm-hmm. Thompson that there, there, there was a kind of revolutionary quality to English working class movements then and a real revolutionary threat. But because of England's weird history, it came so soon uh, that English workers didn't have Marxism, right? So they didn't have any explanation mm-hmm of why it was that they should rule. And that's sort of why they failed. I mean, it's, it's very compelling in a lot of ways, I think, but it's also sort of amazing. It's it's in some ways, like it comes off a little bit, you know, incredibly offensive, right? Like they just they yeah, just didn't right, understand exactly. that they should have the power. <laughs> and if only someone had told yeah. them um, about this, they would have known the immortal science. Right. If only they had discovered the science had developed cult their superstructure a little more, you know, they would have been set to rule. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, it's not it's obviously not all wrong either in the sense that um, I mean, I think what, one illustration of this I thought was very useful and kind of compelling that I had not thought about till I read this was, you know, of all of Europe's uh, socialist parties, you know, which rise to you know, seriously contending for power at various points. They're all called either the you know, Social Democratic Party, Socialist Party, Communist Party, whatever, only in Britain. Is it the Labour Party, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I thought that was like an incredibly obvious, yet I'd never thought of it kind right. of point. And in that, in in being that, it, it's uh, it's claiming to represent its class, but it's not claiming to have a vision for all of society, right? right? Which it's is sort of a it's sort of a resigned name. Yeah. You know? The other other amazing line I always think about in this essay is where he says the problem with the British working class is not that it's not class conscious enough; it's that it's too class conscious. Right. That um, the kind of pattern of relations with the elites is so deep and people are so acculturated to it that uh, they, they can't even dream of transcending it, which is mm-hmm. a kind of hyper class consciousness. Sure. Though, <laughs> then you're starting to stress what class consciousness means. Yeah. OK. <laughs> <laughs> and then but so to get at the crux of this, I mean, I was I think this is from another of Thompson's essays on time work discipline and in industrial capitalism. But he says, I've suggested in the making of the English working class then 19, that in 1832, a revolutionary outbreak was averted only at the 11th hour. There were reasons, but not overwhelming ones, why this was averted. If it had not been, then it is reasonable to suppose that revolution would have precipitated a very rapid process of radicalization passing through and beyond a Jacobin experience. So, again, he like fundamentally is is disagreeing with Anderson's schema here. And yet Anderson, yeah. in many ways, in his responses, says he doesn't disagree with this. It's it's almost a matter of just emphasis is differing. You know, I think. Uh, then also the rest of the 19th century, which we don't need to get into here, is also a big part of the debate between sure. them. Um, but that, that kind of gets at one of the other kind of famous critiques of Thompson that we should mention. We can talk about more too, uh, which is, comes from Eric Hobsbawm. And um, folks, I imagine, who are listening to this all know who Eric Hobsbawm is, but I guess we can just say he was Thompson's uh, collaborator in the Communist Party Historians Group. He was the one member who never quit the party. He lasted as long as the party did. And then, you know, uh, the party died. He kept going, Um, wrote a million books, fascinating figure. Um, Anyway, Thompson or sorry, Hobsbawm said about Thompson, uh, you know, great book or whatever. It's a crazy thing to call it the making of the English working class. Everyone knows the English working class was made 
in the late 19th century. Mm. Uh, like this book is about basically like 1790 to 1840, roughly. Um, and Hobsbawm's point is that, you know, at which kind of Anderson says too, right, is after that, working class militancy kind of goes quiet, organizations fade, they get more moderate, demands go away, strikes and conflict get le- less intense. And it's only in the 1880s and 1890s with the kind of high industrial revolution of like rail and steel and global trade and so mm-hmm. on um, and coal that the modern labor movement in Britain emerges and, and you know, the kind of steel workers and dock workers and rail workers were the kind of, and coal miners are the main parts of that. Um, and those, those are the unions that formed the basis of the Labour Party. So, you know, the uh, kind of another kind of line of criticism of this book is it's sort of idiosyncratically chosen this early kind of weird prologue moment. Why did he choose this moment? I mean, what is his justification for focusing on the late 18th century, early 19th? Well, Thompson's always, always, always trying to separate out our understanding of uh, what class is and how class works from the specificities of any particular historical moment of class formation and class conflict. Um, and, you know, he's, all, he's constantly saying, you know, that you will uh, find versions of class conflict that kind of look unfamiliar to you if you look around in history and around the world, because it always draws on the kind of cultural resources and historical background of its participants. It doesn't draw on, you know, uh, like, you know, actors don't just get up and say a line from the Communist Manifesto, right? That's not Mm -hmm. how it works. Um, And in fact, right here in the preface somewhere, he says, uh, class has no pure specimen. So I think, you know, he's gone back to this kind of stranger early moment before trade unionism, basically, you know, a lot of, I mean, mainly what we're going to be reading about this in this book is not like strikes, right? That's not industrial conflict. It's not really most right. of what's happening. Um, it's other kinds of class conflict. And I think he's done that to show um, that there is a history of class and, you know, working class activity in England uh, that surrounds and brackets the kind of much more familiar Hobbsbawm type, uh, you know, coal miners and dock workers and, you know, from the late 1800s until until the 50s when this is being written. Though there's something to be said, right? I mean, in the criticism that you're Thompson sort of diluting what the significance of working class struggle means, right? What the terms actually could look like. I mean, this is a big part of the debate between him and his sort of adversaries or critics, right? Totally. Right. And in fact, also, you'll see people say very frequently about this book, uh, you know, it like never really goes inside a workplace mm-hmm. um, that, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, he used the word plebeian in one of the selections we read before. Uh, we're talking about kind of plebeian people, you know, everyday people, people who work for a living. Um, but what makes them a class is Thompson selecting out their activities and saying these activities all share a kind of growing sense of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, that's why he's sort of, you know, at, at some opposition with someone like Hobbsbaum, who was a much more orthodox Marxist. Right. I mean, I 
when I think of sort of how debates go today in these things, the line that you read where it says their aspirations were valid in terms of their own experience. And it's just like, what does that actually mean? Of course, they were valid. Um, of course, they happened and they could be justified on their own terms. But what is the significance of them to sort of working class struggle? I mean, that's a more orthodox reading would say some of this is has nothing to do with that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about experience. I think, I mean, experience is key for sure. Thompson. And we haven't talked about it yet, but you know he presents ex- the idea of experience, historical experience, as being the thing that he's kind of. It's like his discovery methodologically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's how it's what mediates between the base and the superstructure, right? You have the base of like whatever is happening in the process of capital accumulation, and then you have whatever is happening in the world of politics and culture. Uh, and Stalinists say, you know, one dictates the other. Liberals say, yeah, it's kind of all just happening and there's no particular relationship. Um, and uh, Thompson is saying there is a relationship. I mean, he he disagrees with, you know, he, he, like, he, he wants to stress that it's a metaphorical, like, like it's Stalinist, the Stalinist model should be dismissed based on superstructure or just a metaphor. But still, uh, there is a relationship between these things, the kind of determined conditions in which people find themselves and the actions that they take in response to those conditions. But that, that the term in between them is experience and people have experiences and those experiences then shape their ideas and their ideas cause them to take the actions that they take. Um, so that is really the kind of concept that gives rise to social history in a lot of ways. Uh, this kind of history of everyday people and their ideas and actions because there's this thing that we haven't studied yet called experience. Yeah, I think it's Madeline Davis in one of her essays, which Gabe sent me several of them. Um, but she talks about this and she says, superstructure-based metaphor, you know, he introduces the concept of experience as a mediator between social being and social consciousness. So it's of first importance that men don't only reflect experience passively, you know, in the Stalist model, they also think about that experience and their thinking affects the way they act. The thinking is the creative part of man, which even in class society makes him partly an agent in history, just as he is partly a victim of his environment, um, which I think su- sums it up pretty well. And also, again, harkens back to this socialist humanism that Thompson's coming from, um, where there's this sort of emphasis on desire and create creation um, rather than necessity. Yeah. And agency. I mean, agency is another totally key term associated yep. with Thompson that, uh, I mean, the next... 5,000 history books written after this one all talk about agency. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of conceptual baggage that comes in with also with the ideas of agency and experience, which uh, we don't necessarily need to unpack now, but I think it's worth sort of flagging as you read the book, you know, what do you make of how he's deploying these concepts? And we can kind of bring in critiques of them later, I guess. And also, I mean, because he's been so influential, so many of these words, you know, when they as you're reading, just when they strike you, oh, debates over agency and what it means might sound very familiar. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of this does stem from Thompson's intervention. Yeah, totally. So there's a continuity. Um, and so the familiarity of some of these terms to contemporary debates on the left, I think, is is not a coincidence at all. It's why we're going back there to the go. source. Exactly. <laughs> So when when Gabe and I were thinking about doing this book club slash podcast, so part of the reason is because this is such a sort of grand text that had a huge influence and that a lot of people haven't read yet and I haven't read. It's been sitting on my nightstand for years. Um, that's one reason to read it. 
The other is that there's some level of parallel context between Thompson, what he's doing, and the era and milieu he's writing in. And I feel like the present has some, there's some parallels to the sort of world we're in. Um, I'm curious what you think, Gabe, about the present context and how it bears on, this book bears on that. Yeah, I mean, the main parallel that I see is like the late 50s and early 60s, we are in a period of historical left-wing defeat, um, but with some new forces emerging. I'm not saying it's mm-hmm. identical. Um, you know, I think the timelines are quite different in various ways. But uh, you know, the beginning of the Cold War was very disorienting for people who had been like Thompson and like a lot of his comrades, um, you know, part of the Popular Front, uh, and then found their societies kind of increasingly. Uh, you know, taking these anti-communist turns, McCarthyism did not have a nearly as intense an equivalent in Britain as it was here in the U.S. But, you know, you can still imagine that it was not a super easy thing to be a communist in, in the sure. 50s uh, in, a, in a leading, you know, capitalist imperialist power. And, you know, then the kind of discrediting of the Soviet project, not just broadly, but for themselves, similarly, was very disorienting. At the same time, uh, the late 50s and early 60s, right, there were efforts to kind of deal with that, to begin to reorganize. And, you know, in this country, when we say the new left, we typically mean like the 68 mm-hmm. phenomenon. Um, but Britain had two new lefts. So it was the first new left and the second new left. And the first new left formed in the 50s and was what Thompson was part of. Um, its main kind of uh, instantiations were one, new left clubs that kind of proliferated around the country and formed the basis in part for New Left Review, uh, and two, the disarmament movement, uh, which was a huge social movement and political movement in Britain that we didn't really have an equivalent of in the US, but uh, virtually everyone who was on the left at the end of the 50s and beginning of the 60s was involved in some way in the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Um, And so I do think that there was both a sense that we've gotten our asses kicked. We're really disoriented. We need to rebuild in a way that we can recognize from where we sit. A sense that there are some possibilities, you know, emerging kind of ways of doing that. And then a problem, which I'd be curious to hear you talk about more, a problem of the gap between left-wing intellectuals and activists and the working mm-hmm. class. Yeah. I mean, so that's a conversation that happens a lot today, um, I think, by people who are in white-collar organizing milieus or unions or movements and then pink and blue collar workers right there is a gap dsa i think is sort of the sort of uh, in many ways the best example of this which isn't to say that there aren't blue collar and pink collar workers in dsa but there's just a sense of a sort of divide culturally um, to draw on something thompson would find very important there's a sense that people are sort of coming from a specific fraction of the working class um, and that not all fractions are so equally represented in the rising left of the current moment, whatever you want to call this rising left around Sanders and and so on. Um, and so there's been I mean, you've been a part of this debate. I've been a part of this debate around what is the what are the politics of that class fraction? Um, I think we're both in agreement that, you know, white collar workers or intellectuals or writers, journalists are also part of they can sort of be they are workers um they can be one to working class politics they're not inherently sort of this elite in any way 
Um, but there is a distinction to be made and there is some tension and it requires the intervention of people to actually make these arguments to, you know, whether you want to call them the professional managerial class or whatever you want to call them. Um, I mean, in Thompson's day, when I was reading some some of this writing about Thompson's political effect, um, I found it really interesting. You know, one big term that people used at the time a lot in these arguments was commitment, that intellectuals had to commit. They had to throw down with the working class. They had to pick a side. Um, now, you know, when Thompson's writing, he th- at one point says that joining something isn't enough. Um, that actually the task for intellectuals has to be helping people to become aware of the vast human potentialities denied or frustrated within capitalist society. So intellectuals actually have this sort of agentive place, um, which I'm kind of skeptical of these arguments when Anderson makes them about how the working class didn't have Marxism and that's why um, they never had a revolution. Again, the sort of power of ideas, I'm pretty skeptical of that. Um, But it is highly reminiscent of debates that go on, at least in the U.S. left today, around what is the role of sort of the socialist left writ large compared to the entire population of the working class. Yeah, it's interesting also, though, to think about how the same sets of questions about the orientation of intellectuals toward working class politics occurs in these contexts that feel so divergent also in Mm -hmm. some ways. I mean, in a certain... my my sort of tendency in thinking about this is to assume that this just means the intellectuals of today or like the people talking about this are delusional and that they were not so delusional in the 50s because there actually was an organized working class that was not completely atomized versus today. I mean, we're talking about intellectuals and white collar workers and so on love talking about themselves. So is it just that they're always asking these questions and we just happen to be picking up on this period and then comparing it to Thompson's era, I think that's possible. I think I think that's possible too, but I think what Thompson would say would be this. I think Thompson would say, um, you know, in 1960, uh, we kept waiting for the work, we were, the mistake was to wait for the working class to behave the way that it had, you know, 30 years mm-hmm. before, right? And it's kind of most power, you know, I mean, Britain had a general strike in 1926 or nationwide. It failed, but, sure. you know, still. Um, <laughs> Our mistake then, I think he would say, was to not come to think like broadly enough about where and how working class power might work and to allow ourselves to kind of be continue to be trapped in the same uh, model of class formation mm-hmm. that we had. And I think he would then say about our own moment, right, that, that is even more the case, right, that there's no, there's no particular reason why working class militancy and power and politics have to take the form of like the forms of dense industrial organization mm-hmm. that you know they had and experienced as you know good in some ways and problematic in others in the 50s right uh, and again you know back to the making of the english working class in the book like there's not a ton of trade unionism um or at least not in like forms that you recognize mm-hmm. as traditional um so i feel like one thing that i'm hoping to get out of this rereading and out of talking it over with you is to uh, Try to, you know, I mean, for all of my resistance to like nostalgia for mid-century America, um, I catch myself too sometimes being like, God, if we could only get back to like thirty percent union density, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I, I think Thompson can be a valuable resource for um, trying to open up and air out 
a little more the how we think about class and class politics. Sure. And I should say, for those who don't know any of my writing, you know, often I end up writing about types of workplace organizing that are, you know, another part of me thinks aren't the traditional view, right? Just because I I think there is something to be said about being surprised by these things. And actually, the fact that the working class organizing today doesn't look the same as it did in the past is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just reality. Um, and so in writing about tech worker organizing um, or any kind of white collar organizing, I think I'm often like arguing against myself, um, or at least part of me in trying to get a sense of what a different kind of organized working class could and will look like. Um, And so that's another reason why, yeah, I'm excited to read the book, just because I need more ammunition against the other half of my brain on this. Yeah, well, as our friend Ben Tarnoff, first ever subscriber to the podcast. He gets a fancy um, shout out for being the first (laughs) test case. Yeah, but, uh, you know, he, Ben, uh, is a tech worker and writes a lot about tech workers and likes to say that, um, you know, the kind of tech workers movement emerged from um, tech workers watching more traditional working class struggles in their own workplaces from like bus drivers and custodial workers and food service workers. Um, But then as it kind of seeped into the like engineering part of the workforce, uh, began to take these new forms of criticizing, you know, the projects and contracts that companies were taking on and so on. And it's been, it's, it's right. It has this kind of like, uh, residual dimension, right, where it's, which is critical for it. It's linked to uh, pre-existing forms of working class activity. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it has this kind of generative and emergent dimension. Right. And I think that's something that in just the past few years of doing this sort of writing and editing at Jacobin and stuff has been very obvious as you pursue this organizing and you write about it and you talk to the people involved in it, is that actually these divisions that seem from the outside to exist more often than not, are not real, or at least are constantly being sort of trying to, people are trying to overcome them in the organizing process, whether it's blue-collar workers and white-collar workers having divisions, whether it's environmentalists and trade unionists. I mean, they're activists within the trade unions that are trying to overcome this stuff. And so I think, again, the, the methodology of, like, that Thompson takes of really looking at the concrete and then from there drawing out connections and divides and looking at how were these people's linked, I think is like really useful and something that I often find myself alienated by debates on the left today because they just don't reflect how the people themselves are sort of thinking and and strategizing around their organizing. Yeah. Or like uh, even if they are real, um, those kinds of divisions, right? even if they have material bases, people are always engaged in the process. Of right. Exactly. Out, That's what I mean. Right? They're trying um, to overcome them. And yeah. it's. And I I think Ben's right about sort of the best case of this is tech workers recognizing the contradictory contradictory position they're in um, and constantly trying to sort of sort it out. Um, And I think it's what makes that organizing really fascinating um, when we think about like generative new types of organizing. Um, Is there anything else we should talk about before we wrap this up? I think we covered this pretty well. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, hopefully, yeah, Let, let us know. Uh, what you thought about this and, you know, we'll then have to reinvent it completely. What's the format going to be for the podcast? What do you mean? Are we doing a chapter a week? What are uh, we doing? Well, I think we should do a chapter. <laughs> <laughs> the one question I really didn't think you would for- not know the answer to, Gabe. <laughs> uh, 
I thought you were asking me like the technical, like the no, like no. wave or MIDI okay. or whatever. I'll, no. I'll uh, answer my own question. <laughs> so we're gonna do. We're our plan is to do a chapter a week. Um, we're hoping to have guests. Um, hopefully, te- the technology part of that we can figure out. We do have a producer now, so we're very official. Um, but yeah, guests that sort of specialize in something that the chapter is about. Um, we have set up, as you'll see when we launch this, we've set up a Patreon page as well as we're on um, what's called Blueberry, Jacobin's podcast site. Um, But you can subscribe to the Patreon and in doing so, you'll get access to a Slack channel. Um, And that's sort of the only reason to subscribe to the Patreon is, well, if you want to support us with money, you're welcome to. But mostly that's going to be throughout the week where people can discuss all sorts of stuff, whether it's the chapter itself, side readings, stupid photos people found. Um, Gabe and I have set this Slack up and we'll um, invite you to it as soon as you sign up to the Patreon and you can be as active or not in that Slack as you'd like. But we'll read it and kind of follow it, um, you know, in in keeping with the idea that this is a book club. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll be able to kind of use it to inform and shape our own discussions. I should also say that Alex created special emoji on the Patreon or sorry, on the Slack for when you want to react, you know, with an emoji, you can react with like the face of Thompson or Perry Anderson, Althusser, Louis Althusser, who we haven't talked about yet, but I'm sure will come up. Um, there's more beyond <laughs> So that. if that's an um, exciting pitch for you, then now everyone, <laughs> if you weren't going to join but now that the emoji are there, you're going to join. Um, by all means, do. Um, I think that's all we need to say for now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think like we should try the pace of a chapter a week. So, you know, for the episode after this one, read chapter one. And if we find that's too fast or too slow, then we'll figure yeah, out. Yeah. And by all means, use the Slack definitely and talk amongst each other and, and with us, because I think that's way more fun than listening to two people talk about a book. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so thank you if you've made it this far. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Thanks to our producer, Sarah Hurd, and to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N or at patreon.com backslash casualties of history. If you want to join in the conversation about the reading, sign up on Patreon and you'll be added to our Slack.